0: from 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and the first ten verses. If you have your Bibles, if you don't have your Bibles, there's one in the pew, page 1165. I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who fourteen years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like this, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool, but because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, then I am strong." You'll find as you read this particular section of Second uh, Corinthians something of the irony of the Apostle Paul, and he's been ironical in this passage. He begins by saying, I must go on boasting. And of course, boasting is something a Christian isn't supposed to do the word boast or boasting actually occurs 27 times in this letter and only 38 times in the whole of the New Testament. After leaving Charlotte Chapel, being part of the 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 setup here, uh, I went to a church to be pastor on the uh, west coast and discovered when I arrived there that I was also young people's leader Um, And uh, on a Sunday evening, after the service, we had them round to the manse, and uh, we did various things. And one of them, on one occasion, one of the young people suggested we have a game. Everybody was given a piece of paper and and a pen, and uh, different questions were asked, and they had to write down the answers to the questions, such as, uh, who's your favorite preacher? And then fold it over, pass it on, um, what is your greatest fault. Down it went, folded over, passed on. The thing that amused me was, what is your greatest virtue? Uh, because as we opened all these papers up afterwards, one of them had written, Humility. <laughs> Reminding us of the man who wrote the book Humility and How I Achieved It. Subtitled, You Too Can Be Humble Like Me. Um, but this passage relates to the Christian paradox of boasting in weakness. People normally boast of their strengths. Uh, Paul boasts in his weaknesses. 2 Corinthians 11, the previous chapter, verse 30, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. And in verse 10, it is when I am weak of this chapter, It is when I am weak that I am strong. Now this all contrasted with the triumphalism of the so-called super-apostles who reveled in displays of natural power. And Paul comments in the previous chapter, verse 5, I'm not in the least inferior to these super-apostles. The deniers of his apostleship were these men, and they were noted for boasting. Indeed, the book of 2nd Corinthians opens with Paul saying, Paul, apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. He had to assert that right from the beginning. Of that he was totally assured he was an apostle. And of true apostles, he says in the first letter to Corinth, it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, procession like men condemned to die in the arena. We've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty, we're in rags, brutally treated, homeless, work hard with our own hands. When cursed, we bless, we bless. When persecuted, we endure it. When slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we've become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. That's where he placed apostles. I sometimes wonder what the advocates of the prosperity gospel make of this particular section. In support of his apostleship, Paul presents unlikely credentials, such as persecutions and rejection. They were the things included on his CV, and his critics rated spiritual visions and revelations. They were signs of the apostles. Well, his reply in verse 2 of the bit that we read, he says, I will go on to these visions and revelations. Paul, did he have visions to authenticate his ministry? Well, I've got three points this morning. The answer to the question I've just asked is yes. He was given a vision. That's verse 2. He was given a thorn verse 7, and he was given grace, verse 9. There are three points this morning. So let's look at the vision given in verse 2. Reluctantly, he recounts a vision from verse 2 to 4. He'd already had several visions. You remember uh, he encountered Christ on the Damascus Road at his conversion. That was his first vision. Secondly, while he was evangelizing in Corinth, Uh, He had a vision in the night. Acts 16 and verse 9, you read about it. Uh, A man from Macedonia was standing there urging him saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, Luke is writing and he's with him and he says, when Paul had seen the vision, we we got ready at once to leave, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel the Macedonians. Second vision. Now, we read of his third vision, but it's uh, reported in 2 Corinthians 12 in the third person as if he's referring to a friend. Uh, But we know that Paul is speaking about himself because he gives it away in verse 7 where he refers to me. He sees nothing to be gained in talking about this revelation. So why do it? Well, again, it's to defend his apostleship following attacks from the super apostles in Corinth. In the previous chapter in verse 13, he calls them false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Um, Well, visions, what do you make of them? Suppose I said to you, The Lord appeared to me in my room this morning and said to me, Tom, my friend, you and I must talk. I have something I want you to pass on. And I then claim to have received a revelation for this congregation, not from the Bible, uh, nothing as second-hand as that, but what God had whispered audibly in my ear in my room. You might be impressed. Mediocre Tom Lawson becomes super Tom Lawson in a minute because of his vision, you see. Um, May I say it didn't happen? And if I ever claim it does, 999. (laughs) Ambulance or or even the police. Um, What are we to make of Paul's vision? It was not an everyday occurrence it happened 14 years ago not that morning not that week but near the beginning of his Christian life an experience that led we read in verse 7 to personal elation which is not a surprise but it was a one-off experience for in 14 years there had never been anything like it again verse 2 says. He did not know whether it was in the body or out of the body. He didn't know whether he was alive or dead. God knows. But he was transported to the third heaven, dwelling place of Almighty God. He says, I know this man was caught up to paradise and given surpassingly great revelations. Verse 7. Now, this was an experience above anything his opponents had known. Having had an experience like that, one might be tempted to boast and to retell this story at every opportunity. One could attract a following. Verse 5, about a man like this I will boast. But his experience never became a focus of his teaching. The details were not for sharing. Verse 4. He neither reveals what he saw nor heard to anyone. It was between himself and the Lord, and it was too sacred to repeat. Uh, It would have a great blessing on him personally, but what... Effect w- w- would it have on him? How would you evaluate the effect of a vision like that on Paul? Would he ever backslide? Well, I, I-, I doubt it very much. After being taken to the third heaven, I think he would see that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that shall be revealed. Um, I don't think Paul would ever backslide. He would live with eternities. Perspective in view all the time. Plus, it would serve to prepare him for the sufferings that lay ahead when he faithfully preached the gospel. He would not be shaken by those experiences of, of pain, uh, which he alludes to again in the previous chapter. Um, Are the super apostles, verse 23, servants of Christ? And then he goes, he I'm talking like a madman. If they are servants of Christ, I am more. I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, flogged more severely, exposed to death again and again, five times I received from the Jews forty lashes minus one, three times beaten with rods, stoned once, three times shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move, in danger from rivers, bandits, my own countrymen, gentiles, in danger in the city, in the country, and at sea. I've been in danger from false brothers. I've laboured, toiled, and often gone without sleep. I've known hunger, thirst, and often gone without food. I've been cold and naked, besides everything else. I face the pressure daily, my concern for the churches. But the memory of the vision fourteen years ago. Don Carson says it would serve as an anchor for his soul in the roughest weather. He'd never like one of his co-workers forsake the Lord for the empty transient pleasures and material possessions of this fleeting world. You know the spirit of Demas is still in the church. Um, Demas was a professing believer Who loved this present world more than he loved the church. And so he gave up on the church, did nothing in the church, and uh, went back into the world. And yet the Bible says, if anyone loves this world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's worth noting, it's quite a challenge there. God reveals his glory to us as he did to Paul to loosen our hold on temporal things, on material possessions. And he doesn't do it to bolster our pride or or for us to accrue personal kudos through our experiences. Paul does not share all that he could from that experience. He would take the details of this vision with him to the grave. Now, I say all that for in days when Claims to direct revelation are not infrequent. Discernment is a gift of the Spirit needed as never before. I've personally heard claims from people um, to have been, who said they've been to heaven and had personal conversations with the Lord Jesus while they were there. Now Paul received wonderful visions from the Lord, but he didn't want to be judged on these accreditation by ecstasy it's been called rather he pointed to the life he lived as a despised hounded and impoverished apostle who passed through experiences of a different kind he didn't say consider my extraordinary visions but note my faith my endurance my lifestyle my conduct my speech. Persuading Christians to see these as far more reliable indicators of how close he knew God, how well he knew God and how close he was in following Christ. Not subjective experiences. Therefore, he would boast of his personal weaknesses and of his trials Uh, to his opponents who were always saying nasty things about him you say I've got no charisma right you say I'm not a trained orator true you say I'm not much to look at you can say that again I don't want people to think of me verse 6 more highly than is warranted and this experience was so private there was no way this vision was so private that in no way could it be verified Paul's veracity could not be checked in that way. I can't prove that his claim to a visited paradise was genuine. I believe him because he's an apostle of God and the Holy Spirit has verified his truthfulness by including the account in the Bible. Proof enough. Christians have made claims pastorally that one has had to evaluate. Having only their word for whatever they've gone through, should I always believe what they say without question? Believe what they say the Lord had said to them in a dream or a vision. Well, I came to the conclusion a long time ago that in those circumstances, skepticism is not only uh, fitting, but necessary and wise. 1 John 4 1 says, Believe, do not, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits as to whether they are from God. Gullibility is not a virtue. Paul counseled believers to concentrate on what they could verify, and this particular revelation given to Paul had painful prolonged consequences for him. The Lord acted to ensure in his life that conceit would not result from what had happened to him. So verse 7, the second gift, which I'll deal with much more briefly, God gave him a thorn. He'd given him a vision, now he gives him a thorn. And this is our second point, what amounted to a further weakness, a painful, stubborn. The Greek word is skolops for this uh, thorn. It can either be a stake or a splinter or a thorn. Very annoying, whichever it is. A foreign body. And this word only occurs here in the New Testament. One commentator says, The effect of its presence was to cripple Paul's enjoyment of life. No wonder Paul wanted rid of it. Though he lived a life fully, of course he did, and was fully content in spite of the thorn. Paradoxically, there was joy that came through his pain. But he was caught up in a vision, and he was brought down by a thorn. A persistent pain prevented him from becoming too elated. Now, I too have had a conversion experience, not as dramatic as what Paul had on the uh, Damascus road, but unlike Paul, I have never been taken up to the third heaven, verse 7. Spiritual experiences are wonderful, but can lead to pride. Humility and reserve are truer marks of spirituality. Paul pleads with God three times to take this thorn away. But instead of doing that, God promised to give him something else. God gave him a vision. God gave him a thorn. And thirdly, he gave him grace. Um, In the Bible, great grace and great privileges often go hand in hand with great suffering. God has stated clearly in his word several times, there will be suffering associated with the Christian life. So we are to expect trouble, hatred, and persecutions. Paul said of the thorn, it was a messenger of Satan to harass me. Courtesy of the devil it came, but God's will was to leave it in place. Now the exact nature of the thorn has been debated for two thousand years. Was it a physical illness? Was it poor eyesight, blepharitis? Was it malaria? Was it curvature of the spine, a speech defect, epilepsy? A few suggestions like these have been made. Um, A besetting, unrelenting temptation, which is an awful thorn to have. In the wisdom of God, the thorn is not specified. If it had been, anyone not having the same thorn might find Paul's experience irrelevant to them. Not knowing the precise nature of the thorn has led to a much wider blessing. It has meaning for any believer who can say, I also have a thorn and I've prayed for relief. Paul says, verse 6, even if I should choose to boast. I would not be a fool, because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what he sees or hears in me. Judge me on the basis of my character, not my charisma." thorn is mentioned in the Old Testament. According to Judges two three, the enemies of Israel were the thorns in their side. According to John Chrysostom in the fourth century, great preacher of the fourth century, the thorn was a human satanic, satanic influence, but it was human, a human enemy. Now, I don't find it difficult to see truth in the claim that, That people cause us the most and the worst pain. Could you go along with that? People cause us the most and the worst pain. I was amused when I saw the uh, notice beware the dog crossed out. Never mind the dog wait till you see its owner. (laughs) And um, Paul says about his current enemies who criticized him, undermined him, and dogged his steps wherever he went. I can understand that the thorn was human. John MacArthur takes the same line, by the way. Um, Paul's worst enemies were not outsiders, which he expected opposition from, but those operating within the life of the church, which is where the super-apostles operated. How he longed to be free of them. He required much grace. Paul's thrice-repeated prayer for the thorn to be removed was to no avail. Therefore, you say, prayer doesn't work. Q-E-D. Well, here's a question for you. Does prayer only work when God gives you what you want? God had his own way of answering Paul's prayer. He provided relief, not by removing the thorn, but by adding more grace, sufficient grace, enabling him to bear up as a Christian. Uh, I said that the word thorn occurs once in the New Testament. Grace occurs 155 times in the New Testament. and. Um, with several meanings of course, but grace in this case means the strength of God imparted to endure and overcome. James 4 and verse 6 God, uh, he gives us more grace. That's why scripture said, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Humbled Paul was given grace. 2 Corinthians 9.8 God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Hebrews 13.9, it is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace. The greater the weakness, the more the grace. He gives us more grace when the burdens grow stronger. He sends us more strength when labors increase. To added affliction he adds his great mercy, to multiplied trials his multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed, uh, the day is half gone, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving has only begun. His love has no limits, his grace has no measure, his power has no boundary known unto men, for out of his infinite riches in glory he giveth and giveth and giveth again." The vision, the thorn, and the grace. Paul's undoubtedly gifted rivals, sadly, were devoid of personal grace. Failing to see that the greatest in the kingdom of God is he who takes the lowest place, willing to do the most menial task, associating with the lowest people. The greatest leader is the humblest servant. You know... I think the Lord does all this because there's a problem associated with pride, which we do well to recognize. Become proud and you become less usable in God's service. The thorn was to keep Paul humble enough for God to continue to use. This contrasts with a form of Christianity that has gained favor in the modern world, which teaches that every enterprise should be successful, every leader should sparkle, every mission become fruitful, every project prosper, every Christian should be constantly healthy. Have you heard that? Entitled even to claim healing in the name of the Lord Jesus and to expect a life virtually free from trouble. I wonder, are we reading the same Bible here? Paul's critics hadn't learned in their pride that only when we are weak are we strong. That would be gobbledygook to the Corinthian celebrities. Defeatist nonsense, they would reply. But this is the truth. God is at his closest when we are at our weakest believers must see the connection between the word suffering and the words for Jesus sake. Verse 10, it was a matter of Paul submitting to the will of God here as his Savior had done earlier in the garden, where Jesus also asked the Father three times to remove the cup of God's wrath from him. Father, if you are willing Remove this cup from me. It was not removed. He must drink it. But we read, There appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. The Father gave him strength. I'm reading through the life of Job again uh, at the moment, just on the morning. And we know from the life of Job that sometimes allows Satan to hurt us in this world. Satan has many thorns he can use. The Father allowed the Son himself to be smitten, stricken, crushed, bruised, wounded. And I believe it's important for any preacher to tell a congregation the truth. And this is the truth, my brothers and sisters. It is not God's will that his children should avoid every kind of illness and affliction in this world. That is bad theology. It is unbiblical. It is bad theology because it is untrue. If it were true, where would that place Paul, Timothy, Epaphras, Elisha, Job, Hezekiah, and countless other saints, ancient and modern, all of whom we read have suffered according to the will of God. The thorn precluded Paul from ever thinking of himself as someone special, as a spiritual superman. But it kept him close to the Lord. In not forgetting the thorn, he did not forget the Lord. He looked to the Lord for grace. Paul's Christian life was not that of a charmed preacher experiencing unbridled popularity, along with wealth and acclaim but a life marked by pain and great grace which enabled him to endure. The thorn remained. I thank thee, Lord, that all our joys are touched with pain. The shadows fall on brightest hours. The thorns remain. The thorn remained, but so also did the grace for every day to cope with every adversity in abundance. In these pews this morning, there are those who know physical pain, maybe mental anguish, that earnest prayer has not yet relieved. God does sometimes heal, in case you've misunderstood me. He sometimes removes thorns in answer to prayer. He's done so often, but healing can neither be claimed or demanded. And rarely, if ever, does the Lord remove from our lives every thorn. God hates thorns as much as you and I. They appeared as the result of the curse, but one day Eden will be restored. There are no thorns in the paradise of which Paul was given a glimpse in his vision. And the Apostle John too also had a vision, Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And this he saw, God wiping away tears from their eyes. Death shall be no more, there shall be no more mourning, no crying, no pain, for the former things have passed away. Well, all we can say there is hallelujah. Soon after I was converted, in my early teens, I remember different preachers coming along during a vacancy that we had, and there was a Welshman came, and he was called Jones. There's a surprise. And he was, had a Welsh church, and he visited a, an old Welsh lady. He'd been preaching on heaven, and he told me about this lady he visited, Mrs. Jones. Um, and she had rheumatoid arthritis rather severely. Let me tell you I know something about rheumatoid arthritis. On my mother's side so many of my family suffered terribly from it. And he said to Mrs. Jones, Mrs. Jones make the most of your rheumatoid arthritis because when you get to heaven you'll have to learn to live without it. (laughs) No more I just remind you also of Jim Packer I don't know whether it was he addressing a group of ordinands for the ministry but he was warning them you know that in the ministry they'll never become rich dare I say this he was telling them that they'll never get very good wages but the pension is out of this world Set your affection on things above. The servant of God grows weak as he lives a life of service to others for Christ's sake and the Gospels. Christian life is a paradox, as we've seen here. A coexistence of human weakness and divine strength. I'm almost finished, by the way. I'm not going to take my 50 minutes. The passage is therefore very precious to me in which the Holy Spirit deals a blow to triumphalist teaching and their over-realized eschatology. There's a mouthful. Um, Expecting too much too soon. Um, A teaching that sprang up, especially in the latter half of the 20th century. People who demand and expect heaven now as well as in the future But even then, it was not new because it was there in Paul's day in Corinth. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, truthful speech, and the power of God. In understanding with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and the left through glory and dishonor, bad report and good, genuine yet regarded as imposters, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. In these things we commend ourselves. And he proved his Apostleship through afflictions Through abuse Through mocking Through death This was his testimony God said to me My grace is sufficient for you For my power is made perfect in weakness Therefore I will boast all the more gladly About my weaknesses So that Christ's power may rest on me That is why For Christ's sake, I delight, I take pleasure in weaknesses, in insults, hardships, persecutions. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul's way of dealing with attacks on his person and his apostolic authority was patterned consciously by his Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and Him crucified. Paul responded to adversity the way the Lord Jesus responded to suffering. And Peter says, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no deceit was in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he trusted himself to him who judges justly. For Christ was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power, we will live with him to serve you. That's the message for this morning, and the Lord bless you. Let's pray together.